tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. That's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, I really do wish that I could tell you that things were not obscure, but we got more obscure today. But uh, I I, I get along with obscure, so we're going to be obscure. You're close friends with obscurity. (laughs) Yes, the voice in my head. uh, Yes, that's true. Close friends with obscurity. (sighs) Oh, dear. (laughs) Oh, Lord, throw us a softball. Let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. By that same spirit, may we all have right judgment in all things and evermore rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. Oh, we have the gospel from Mark about Belzebul and Belzebub. <laughs> that, that, um, I'll use that for the word of the day because it's fun. Uh, what's the difference between Belzebub and Belzebul? Well, the letter to the Hebrews is is... Again, with the, I'm going to have to talk about Talmud, and I please take it with a grain of salt. Where's the salt shaker? Take it with a grain of salt because, you know, I, I of course am not Jewish, and I'm not a, a great student of Talmud. I probably know a little more about Talmud than most Catholics would, but um, uh, my knowledge of Talmud would come from my friendship with Orthodox rabbis and. Uh, now, once again, the Talmud. What is the Talmud? The Talmud is not biblical. It's not a Bible book. There was an oral tradition uh, that was supposedly passed down from Moses when the elders of Israel went up on the mountain and ate and drank with God um, at Mount Sinai in the desert. They were given an oral tradition, and this was passed down. It explained how to interpret the law, especially regarding sacrificial law and and the practice of the temple. So this was passed down, not through priests, not through the sacrificing class, the the sons of Aaron, no, but through elders. And elders were ordained. Sacrificers were not. And for sacrificer, read priest. Or for priest, read sacrificer better. 
So this oral tradition was passed down, and it is called the Mishnah, the, the retelling, the Mishnah. And after the temple was destroyed, the Mishnah was put into writing. And um, it was rather controversial that they did it because it was an oral tradition. And this Mishnah was then studied and amplified by rabbis after the fall of the temple, after really after, well, yeah, from the fall of the temple on, let's say, in, in uh, A.D. 70. They wrote notes to it. Have you ever seen, you know, end notes are at the bottom of a page in a book? Well, they would put their, their notes, their commentaries on three sides of the page. The Mishnah's in the middle of the page, and then on three sides are annotations by rabbis. And uh, um, that's called the Gemara. So those two works, the Mishnah and the Gemara together, are uh, um, called the Talmud, which means the study. A Talmud is a disciple or a student. The Talmud is the study. And I remember asking Rabbi Lefkowitz if there was a place where a Gentile could study uh, an Orthodox place where a Gentile could study Talmud. He said, no, not really. And I said, why? Well, Maimonides said to teach a Gentile the Talmud, it's a waste of their time. It's a waste of your time, which I thought was kind of interestingly frank, that that um, uh, the purpose of the Talmud was to be able to, to obey the 613 laws of Torah perfectly. And why bother to study it if you're not going to obey the 613 laws of Torah, which we Christians, we only obey the, the primary 10 or are affected by the primary 10. So that's the Talmud. It is no, we do not consider it inspired. The Mishnah especially is very important. Uh, Dr. Dr. Brant Pitrie really knows his Mishnah. And if you want it, he's got books on it. He's a brilliant man. So, um, uh, Anyway, that's what we're talking about here. Now, the thing that the reason I would have asked Rabbi Lefkowitz if there was a place one could study Talmud, because the reasoning process of the Talmud is amazingly uh, intricate and precise. And I maintain that it is woven through the Gospels. It is this this way of thinking is woven through the Gospels, the letters of St. Paul, letter to the Hebrews, particularly, I think, Romans and Hebrews. Um let me give you an example of, of Talmud. I was discussing with Rabbi Lefkowitz one day the idea that that Abraham was not actually Jewish. Because how could you be Jewish before Mount Sinai? To be a Jew, according to Rabbi Lefkowitz, it isn't simply an ethnicity. Judaism is not a theology. It's a practice. To be a Jew, at least by the, the way the Orthodox define it, is not simply your ethnicity or even your religion. It's a practice. It's not a theology as much as we don't eat that, we don't do that, we don't go there, we do go there, we do do that. So this is the idea, the, 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 the punctilious obedience of the law. I said, well, Abraham, how could Abraham have obeyed the law before the law had been given? Abraham, technically speaking, wouldn't be Jewish. Uh, you couldn't be Jewish before Mount Sinai. Jacob, the father of Israel, couldn't have been Jewish. Well, Rabbi Lefkowitz said, uh, um, no, but we believe that, that God gave a special dispensation to Abraham, and he knew the law uh, before the law was given. And I said, well, 
the law forbids the eating of meat and milk together, right? And didn't Abraham uh, 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 didn't Abraham uh, offer meat and milk to his three guests when they appeared? Uh, the the three strangers who came and told him that his wife was going to have a child, and Rabbi Levi said yes, but he didn't eat any of it. The scripture doesn't say he ate it. His guests may have. You may think that's just splitting hairs. No, it's a precision because one of the principles, as I understand it, of Talmudic interpretation, is that that if it's not mentioned in the scriptures, it didn't happen or it isn't important. So the fact that the scripture, the Torah doesn't say that, see, I told you this was going to be obscure. The Torah doesn't say that Abraham ate the meat and milk means, well, he didn't eat the meat and milk. What has this to do with the letter of the Hebrews? I got a letter from uh, um, David, uh, whom I know. David, if you're listening, hello. Uh, David uh, said that, that um, well, he said, hello, Father Samuel. Hello, David. I heard recently that Melchizedek may have been Shem's son of Noah. This is Dr. Bergsma, who's a real scholar. He is a real scholar. He points this out, that there was a tradition, if you do all the numbers, that Shem would have lived from the time of Noah till the time of Adam, or rather, till the time of Abraham, and that Melchizedek, there was a rabbinic tradition that Melchizedek uh, was... Um, actually Shem, uh, the son of Noah. However, there was also a tradition. Jews don't have a problem, or rabbis don't have a problem with contradicting traditions. They just sort of forward them all. That's like us. Are there two angels of the resurrection or one? Just tell both stories. So, uh, you know, they're comfortable with that. Um, and both stories might be illustrative. So there's a, there was a rabbinic strain that talked about Shem being, uh, actually being Melchizedek. However, in the letter of the Hebrews, Melchizedek does not have ancestors or descendants. He has no past, no future. He is eternal and thus a type of Jesus, the Son of God. We don't know who uh, Melchizedek's ancestors were. And that's resting on that Torah, I told you this was obscure. It's resting on that Torah principle that if it isn't in the Torah, it didn't happen or it doesn't matter. So because the ancestors of Melchizedek are not mentioned, he didn't have any. He's eternal like the Son of God. And this is this is the author of the letter to the Hebrews trying to use a, a, a Torah text to prove that that Jesus was divine. By associating him with Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is in the Torah. This is this is this is a kind of logic that we don't think is logical. But take the text as absolute, and you can pull these things out of it. Now that's not very popular these days. We call that fundamentalism. No, it's Talmudic thinking. That who knows what happened? As I always say, I wasn't there. But what does the text say? And the text is trying to prove that Jesus is a priest, king, messiah, a human and divine uh, uh, person, and a dying and rising. So finally, let us get to the letters. 
this is about, I mean, there's the Messiah doesn't in the Torah. There's no mention. There's barely mention of the Messiah. There are a couple of passages that you can say predict the Messiah, but there's nowhere where it says the Messiah is going to die a sacrificial death. And yet there was that tradition among the Jews and that tradition exists to this day. There are two messiahs in much of Jewish thought. And once again, in the Talmud, there are two messiahs. There's Messiah, son of Joseph, the suffering servant who dies in battle with the enemies of Israel. Well, we can apply that to Christ. He was the son of Joseph. That's what his legal name was. Jesus, son of Joseph, Yeshua bar Yosef. That, that was his legal name. And, and he died in battle on the cross fighting against the enemies of the people of God. So there's that. The 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 Essenes and the, the Dead Sea sectaries, they had, uh, they talked about a, a, a priest king messiah, that the royal messiah was a political messiah. His job was to make way for the, the, um, the priestly messiah because they were all from the priestly family so but the one that came, made it into talmud is son of joseph the suffering servant so this idea we have jesus coming in the flesh two thousand years ago but coming at the end of time it isn't just a dodge it's an adaptation of a very jewish idea that there are two messiahs we just think of the same jewish fellow jesus son of mary son of god you know, the glorious Davidic Messiah at the end of time and the suffering servant, son of Joseph, same guy. So <clears throat> these things didn't just sort of pop into being uh, like Athena from the head of Zeus. Uh, that's a classical analogy for all of you classicists there. So let's look at the reading of Hebrews. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant since a death has taken place. What? Yeah, there's no, a covenant can't end until one of the covenanters dies. And so the death of Jesus ends the old covenant. How does the death of Jesus end the old covenant? Well, you can't say that God died, but he was the descendant of David, the rightful king of Israel, and the death of the, the leader of the people would have would have uh, in in this sacrificial way uh, i imagine that's what the author is implying that that ended ended the covenant um, it, because a covenant can't end as long as both covenants are alive uh, de a death has taken place for deliverance from transgressions under the first covenant those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance oh that's a tough thing in other words we're freed from the strictures of the sacrificial law. Christ did not enter into a sanctuary made by hands, a copy of the true one, but heaven itself. Remember that Moses made the tent of meeting as a copy of what he had seen on, on the mountain. Uh, and God showed him a vision of the heavenly temple. He made the tent of meeting and the Jerusalem temple, as well as the Shiloh temple, were made according to that model. So, Jesus didn't go into the copy. He went into the real thing. Uh, not that he might offer, not that he might offer, now that he might now appear before God on our behalf, not that he might offer himself repeatedly. Claudine sent me a letter saying that we Catholics believe that. I'll talk about that in the letters. The high priest enters each year into the sanctuary with blood not, that, not, that is not his own. If that were so, he would have to suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world. But the fact that Jesus, Son of God, 
offered his own blood, it it did what the old sacrifices couldn't. Uh, now he has appeared at the end of the ages to take away sin by his sacrifice. Just as it is appointed that human beings die once, and after this the judgment, so also Christ, offered once to take away the sins of many, will appear a second time not to take away sin, but to bring salvation to those who eagerly await him. So uh, the, the, the salvation that we long for is, is the vision of God in heaven, and Christ will come to bring us to that. This is complicated stuff, <clears throat> but what's going on here is, is as I say, a, Talm- a Talmudic way of reasoning. Oh, I'm going to have to go along. I'm sorry, because now we go to Mark. Uh, the sin against the Spirit. So many people are vexed by the sin against the Spirit. Father, I think I've committed the sin against the Spirit. No, you haven't. If you could say that, you haven't committed the sin against the Spirit. What is the sin against the Spirit? It is a two-sided coin. One side is presumption. The other side is despair. The despair side is, my sin is so big that God cannot forgive it. The presumption side is, I don't, I don't have to need God's forgiveness. This is not a sin. God needs my forgiveness. If God is good and kind and loving, how could he love the Holocaust? How could he love this? Why would he forbid that? Why wouldn't he let me do what I want? Why, why do I suffer? We become the judges of God. That's presumption. You can put yourself outside the mercy of God. This is the amazing thing about our faith, that you can limit God. God has deigned. He has allowed us to limit him. He had his hands nailed to the cross. And I always remember, he couldn't swipe the flies away from his face. We believe that we can limit God by his gift and his grace. And so when I say, I don't need God's forgiveness, we limit God. I always used to say the only person not welcome <clears throat> at St. Lambert's when I was pastor was was the one who'd never sinned. They didn't need us. I, I was very welcome being a sinner. I was most welcome in my own parish. But you understand what I mean? The only person not welcome at St. Lambert's was the person who, had, who did not sin. We, we made an exception in the case of the Blessed Mother conceived, conceived without the effects of original sin. I half joke. But uh, you see what that means? If I refuse to ask for God's forgiveness, I put myself beyond God's forgiveness. Remember, the word forgive means to let go. If I hold on to sin, then the devil's got me. Oh, let me let me just share this. I think I've shared it with you how to catch monkeys. Very simple. You get a very narrow neck jar. It's got to be really heavy. Put some rocks in the bottom and then put something in the jar that monkeys like. The monkey will come out of the forest and look and he'll put his hand in there and he'll grab something. Can't get his hand out of the jar. You got yourself a monkey. Why you'd want one, I don't know. They bite. But that's the point. That's how the devil catches me and you. If I hold on to something, if I don't let it go, you know, the devil's got me. I'm dragging this heavy jar behind me of resentment, of hatred, of arrogance, of despair. And I, by refusing to ask for God's forgiveness, I put myself beyond God's forgiveness. But the moment I stop and say, yeah, I'm going to let God work in my life. I need God's forgiveness. Then God can begin to work in your life. So the sin that 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 can't be um, uh, um, uh, forgiven, the unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, God can't let it go. Only you and I can let it go, and then God can work. 
I think that's the sense of the unforgivable sin. If you can say, I think I've committed the unforgivable sin, you're looking for forgiveness. You haven't committed it. All right. Then he goes on. I just have to finish this. I'm so sorry. How can Satan drive out Satan? He goes on to this strongman thing. No one can enter a strongman's house to plunder his property unless he first ties up the strongman. There's all these people. There's great controversy in the evangelical and Pentecostal world. Who is the strongman? Is that the devil? Is that the Lord? Is that the sinner? Well, I think that when you understand this idea of the sin against the spirit, you know, that he's saying these people are refusing to recognize God. They're saying he's he's possessed by the prince of devils. No, you're refusing to recognize this is not the devil. This is God. And they've tied themselves up. Satan convinces us that we don't need the forgiveness of God. We're like the monkey with the jar on his hand. That's what this is about, that that this binding of the strong man. We're strong when we trust in God. But when when we say, I don't need God, then we become weak. No one can enter the strong man's house to plunder his property unless he first ties up the strong man. And that's, I think, what this is about. The sin against the spirit, so-called, binds the soul so tightly. If I refuse to ask God for forgiveness, if I refuse to admit, that is, to confess my sins, then then I, I, I'm bound by the devil. You know, the things I'm holding on to, the resentments, the arrogances, the presumptions, the sins... The things that I refuse to give up to the Lord, these are the bindings that tie the strong man. Okay, so I think that's a very important thing uh, uh, to understand that it doesn't mean uh, um, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to put yourself in a position where God has made himself unable to help you. He gives you your freedom. But the minute that you step back from that, that you repent of that arrogance, be it the arrogance of pride or the arrogance of despair, that God can begin to move in your life again. Let's go to a break. (sighs) Oh, I got the the phone number, 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. Don't wait till the last three minutes to call me. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. Learn more about the Catholic University for independent thinkers at relevantradio.com forward slash u Dallas. We're calling Jesus, my rock, my rock, my rock, Mary's baby, my rock, beating lamb, my rock, yes, he's ever walking beside me, and he never really will, Jesus, amen, 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 oh boy, oh boy, let's see here, let's see here, I got one that I wanted to answer, oh, I bet I said it to the other Yes, time for letters, definitely. All right, I got a letter from from our friend Claudine, and uh, 
Oh, seems to be a very regular listener. Hello, Father Simon. You just said the Mass is Calvary. Well, that flies in the face of what you said before. And other Catholics have said that the Mass is not a duplication of Calvary. So which is it? It is the unbloody representation of Calvary. It isn't a duplication. Mass is a time machine. Uh, In in the reading today, we read, and this fits in nicely with the reading, that um, uh, from Hebrews it says, um, just as is appointed for that human beings die once, after this the judgment. That, of course, puts the kibosh on reincarnation as far as we're concerned. So also Christ offered once to take away the sins of many will appear a, a second time. He was offered once uh, to take away the sins of many. What does that mean? If Catholics are saying, well, we have these repeated masses, Calvary again and again and again. No, Calvary is a time tunnel that allows me to go back in time. Seriously, (coughs) I'm always telling you, for God, all moments are now, every place is here. The, the, this idea of, of going to the foot of the cross, I'm, I'm reflecting what St. Paul said when he said that um, in my flesh I make up uh, um, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. What could possibly be lacking in the suffering of Christ? My participation. Jesus wants me to offer my life. Well, that's not necessary. Jesus offered his life. Didn't Jesus say what I have done and greater still will you do? And where I am, there will my servant be. Where's Jesus? He's at the cross. Oh, he rose from the dead. Yeah, but remember, even when he rose from the dead, he carried the cross with him. He had the marks in his hands and feet and in his side. He had the marks of the crucifixion with him. The, 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 if you look closely, especially the Gospel of John, the hour of glory is not the resurrection. It's the crucifixion. Now is the hour come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Unless the grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. The glory of God is the cross where he showed who he was, the the only begotten Son of God who loved the world to that extent. That said, at the Mass, I have the privilege of going back to Calvary. I am there... With all the believers of history, I am there with the Blessed Mother, with the saints and the angels, with all who died in the grace of God. That's what the Mass is, we believe. It isn't a, a new sacrifice. It is the unending and eternal sacrifice of the cross. Well, where does it say that the Mass is an unending eternal sacrifice? Again, I point out that Jesus carried the wounds of crucifixion in his risen body. His risen body is eternal, timeless, undying. And so the wounds of the crucifixion, the badges of love, um, those are those are undying also. So you don't understand what we mean by Mass. Uh, it is not a new sacrifice. It is the, the continuance, the renewal, the, the, the extension of Calvary in time and space. At least that's what... I think, and I, that's what I experience at Mass. So there you go. All right, let us go to another. I, I you know, this stuff is really beautiful stuff, and and uh, I think it's worth worth looking at. All right, let, I got another one here. All right, this is uh, Margaret. 
For 16 years, I prayed for loved ones to return to the Catholic Church. There's no sign they will ever return. Should I see this as God's permissive will? God knows all. He knows I want them to return, and he knows that it's not their will to return. What good are, are my prayers? I know St. Monica prayed for years for St. Augustine. Perhaps I haven't prayed long enough. You know, that is, I think that is the most common prayer we request we get at Relevant Radio. There is a saying that um, God has no grandchildren. Everyone has to come to the acceptance of God's love and grace on their own. And, you know, I think the way we pray, I want them to come back to the church. Why do you want them to come back to the church? So they'll go to heaven. Yeah, that's, that's a good motivation. But I think what we need to pray is that they come to know Christ. You know, I've, I've been told no on this by some of the, the best scholars I know, but I'm still saying it. Look closely. You preach the kingdom, you build the church. You don't preach the church. You don't build the kingdom. I have never seen the phrase in, in Scripture to build the kingdom. In uh, Jeremiah, we read of building up the kingdom. But I'm telling you constantly, the, the, the kingdom is the royal nature of Christ. And again, forgive me, I've said this a thousand times. Jesus said, I will not drink the fruit of the vine with you until I drink it new in the kingdom. When did Jesus next drink the fruit of the vine? On Calvary, on the cross. When the soldiers held up a sponge with posca on it. Posca was was, uh, a drink of wine that had turned to vinegar and it was mixed with water. They found it quite refreshing. (laughs) I don't know that I would. It was very cheap wine mixed with water. Well, it's the fruit of the vine regardless. Jesus drank the fruit of the vine on the cross. So guess what? The cross is Calvary. Or rather, the cross is the kingdom. But no, the kingdom is heaven when we have the the mansions on the street of gold and it's all lovely. No, the cross is the kingdom. And when Jesus says, the kingdom of God has drawn near you, I tell you this ad nauseum, I know, but the word kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, the word kingdom means royal nature, the royalness of God, the royalness of heaven. And Jesus says, he doesn't say is near. When we say the kingdom of heaven is near, we think, oh, Christ is going to come soon and we'll have our mansions on the street of gold. That's not what the text says. I look at it and I say the basilea of God, the royalness of God has drawn near. It has drawn near or it draws near. Why? That's the word. It's a verb. It isn't It isn't a, a, a predicate adjective. Look it up. You should learn that in grade school. The kingdom, the royal nature of God has drawn near. Jesus, Jesus is the kingdom. Jesus is the kingdom. And to be in relationship to him, that's heaven. You know, we think of heaven in such a a materialistic and immature way. Jesus is the kingdom. His cross is his royal nature. So, we preach the kingdom where the kingdom is preached, where Christ is preached, the church is built. Where the church is built, Christ is preached. But we end up preaching the church. 
And you know I love the church, and I believe the church is a necessary uh, uh, reality for salvation. You know, the, the, the church is the bride of Christ, not optional. But we preach Christ and him crucified, as St. Paul says. So when I'm praying for people I know who are far away, what am I praying for? That they that they do all the good stuff that I told them when they were kids? Well, yeah. But what what should I really be praying for? Lord Jesus, that they might come to know you. Well, but they got to do this and they got to jump through that hoop and they got to go to confession. Yeah, they do have all the, have to do all that stuff. But they're not going to do it until they know the Lord. Our goal with our children and with our friends and with our families and with anyone is that they should know Christ. Because if they know Christ, they're going to want to know all about him. And they're going to want to meet his wife, the church. Yeah, his bride. You know, when you meet someone, I just want to get to know you. I don't want to get to know your wife. Love me. Love my wife. You know, ah, yeah, I, I love I love you. But, you know, you're my friend. But your wife, nah, forget her. We're not going to be friends. In fact, is you might you might elicit a... a uh, poking the nose from me, as they say. So, never stop praying and never stop being Christ and pray that they come to know him and that he introduces them to his bride, the church. Uh, it's, it's a different way of thinking. And, um, you know, the life of the Catholic is a reasonable and, and a full life, but it it's not possible to plug into it without knowing Christ. Um you know, this is the thing about uh, we mistake catechesis and evangelism. Evangelism is coming to know the Lord. Catechesis is coming to know about the Lord and his bride. You know, um, a young man falls in love with a young woman or a young woman with a young man, and then <laughs> then they want to get to know all about him. Gee, Mom, her favorite color is pink. Isn't that great, Ma? You know, we just glory in the things about someone with whom we are in love. And unless we're in love with Christ, all of this and the Third Council of Constantinople in 18, it said that verily those who are apostates. You know, I've been to, 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 to eighth grade catechism classes where some guy's a pseudo-theologian up there talking about the 18th Council of, of, of Podunk. And the kids are asleep in agony that they have to sit through this droning. It's like looking at someone else's baby pictures. They're mad. So grandma and grandpa are madly in love with those kids. But you don't want to see all the baby pictures. It's not your baby. If it was your baby, you would want to see every possible picture. You see, you don't want to know about somebody you don't really love or in whom you are not interested. Bring them to Christ and Christ will bring them to his bride, the church. That's how it should work. Uh, let's go to a break. Oh, the phone number. I, I, I guess I'm on a roll today. You know, it's been February for days now. I would say February is the longest month of the year. It starts in January and goes right on through till April. So I'm in a snit. But you can call in and share your snit. 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. This hour is sponsored by Ave Maria Mutual Funds, where financial goals are aligned with pro-life values and fund decisions are based on investment fundamentals designed to preserve and grow wealth without violating moral beliefs. 
More information at AveMariaFunds.com. Oh, I love those hills of old Virginia, from those blue ridge hills I did roam. When I die, won't you bury me on the mountain, far away to my blue ridge mountain home? Spend the rest of the show listening to bluegrass. It's much more optimistic than I am. You know, it's all about miserable things, but it's happy sounding. All right, moving along here. Let's go to the word of the day. Well, in the text today, we have Beelzebub uh, or Beelzebul. Uh, and is it Beelzebub or Beelzebul? They're kind of used interchangeably. There's lots of theories about it. However, uh, what I heard, and this may be true, um, the the you got you got all sorts of variations of it, but uh, they got Baal. The, the, what is it? Beelzebul. Beelzebul. Baal means Lord. And Bell was, oh, by the way, plenty of lines open. 888-914-9149. Do call in. Let me get back to this chaotic thing about, is it Beelzebub or Beelzebul? Let's call the whole thing off. Uh, Beelzebul would be Lord uh, of, of uh, uh, well, it may be a pun. Belzebul uh, is is the Lord Zebul, which was a Canaanite god. Baal means Lord. And Baal Zebub, that means Lord of the Flies. In other words, he's a god of corruption. Dead meat attracts flies. So it was kind of, I, I think, this is one theory, the theory that I go with, uh, Belzebub that idea of the Lord of the Flies was a mockery of Baal or this Lord Zebel, who was a, uh, a Canaanite god. Phew. The early Christians believed that all of these gods were real. It's just that they were demons, and I think that they have a point. All right, that said, uh, I don't know if I've explained it. One's a pun, Baal-Zebub, and the other one is the name of a Canaanite god, Baal-Zebul. Don't worry about either one of them. Don't use them. Okay, let's move along to phone calls. This is smart. Maxwell's smart. Again, lots of lines open at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Let us go to Joe from Charles City, Iowa. Joe, how you doing? I'm doing good. I'm good. in. Uh, good. I'm in the town where... Charles City, Iowa, where all the tractors in the world started. There was a Charles Hart Ooh. and a Charles Parr. They came to Charles City and got the Hart Parr tractor going. And then after that, it was the Oliver tractor, and then it was the White Farm. And then, and then uh, I don't know, We there's no tractors in Charles City anymore. I wish Oliver, I mean, I wish uh, John Deere would open a plant here. But this is where it all started well, in Charles City, Iowa. Well, Mazel tov. The tractor was a good thing to have. So there you go. All right. Oh, yeah. What can I do I for you? To, I didn't really have any questions. I just oh. wanted to call you and tell you that my wife listens to you every morning. She teaches <laughs> second grade at the Catholic 
at the IC church school here, IC school, yeah. Immaculate Conception, Charles City, teaches second grade, and she listens to you every single morning. And if I try oh, saying anything, Lord. she's like, be quiet and listen to Father Simon. So, <laughs> she, you know, she's got the oh. app on, uh, on her phone. And uh, oh, the... she thinks you're the she, she thinks you're the greatest, and uh, she's and I like. She's got to get out too, more. So. <laughs> she's got to get out more. I don't oh, know. No. I think I think it's all pretty obscure. <laughs> this is weird stuff. Yeah. I mean, but Keep yeah, it. that's a beautiful part yeah. of the world. Keep Iowa, I love Iowa. I, I'm living very close oh, to Iowa great. now, so it it's is kind of funny. Is, she was Lutheran. Uh, she was she was Lutheran when I met her, and that uh, we got married mm-hmm. 23 years ago, and uh, it was kind of funny. The, she became Catholic two years in, you know. And on the you know the Easter Vigil Mass uh, yeah. was April fourteenth that year in two thousand uh, in two thousand one, and and that was the same day I had asked her to marry me a year earlier, a couple well three years earlier on April fourteenth. So it's kind of neat, you know. She ended up becoming yeah. Catholic the same day I had asked her to marry me three three years earlier. It was kind of weird. I thought yeah. those kind of. Oh, I always say that evangelicals make the best Catholics. You know they, that they really. Oh, you know, she they, and. I mean, she's probably oh, on fire for, for the Lord. Oh, for sure, she's a way better Catholic than I am. I, I, I yeah, I, she's wonderful. We have oh, well, five I'm, kids later, I'm by the way. Dad, we have five Mazel kids. Tov on that. God bless you. That I'm glad she's dragging you along. Then give her my give her my very best and tell her I'm honored that she listens. All right. God bless. Good to talk to you, Joe. Let's go to uh, uh, let's go to uh, Brother John. Um, Brother John, are you with us? Yes, I am. Good. I, what can I, I asked do for the you? question. Are you, am I on? Yes, you are. Hello? Okay, Hello. I just want to know what is the internal forum? Well, the internal forum, as I understand it, well, when I was teaching in seminary, uh, that, that, uh, I was not, there were certain things I couldn't do. I was an academic, part of the academic fac- faculty, so I could not um, uh, um, hear confessions of any of my students because that might affect my judgment of, of their performance in school and it might affect uh, my evaluation of them. So I, I couldn't evaluate my students. Uh, because, or I, I, I had to evaluate my students academically and sometimes uh, socially. And if I had heard their confession, I, I couldn't do that. So that was uh, the, inter- the, there's a distinction between internal form, uh, where an, it, it's a governance made without publicity, an external form where the act is public and verifiable. So internal form is, is the realm of your conscience. And, you know, uh, um, the external form has to do with your, your, what you act out and is publicly visible. So, you know, a marriage might be null and void in an internal form, but believe it or not, it's still binding outwardly. It's, it's a difficult thing to, to understand, but the internal forum, uh, um, has to do with, with matters of conscience. So I don't know if that helps at all, Brother John. Can we just say it is something that is said inside the confessional between the priest and the penitent? Well, that certainly is the internal forum, uh, but it's more than that. It really is more than that. That that um, uh, 
For instance, uh, a marriage could be uh, legally. Bi- I, I, I'm not a canonist, believe me. The guy who really would know more about this is Father Rocky. He is a, a much better canonist, certainly, than I am. But there can be marriages that are, are not binding in the internal form, but are binding in the external form. Now, how that works, I don't really know. But there are, there are certain marriages that, that, that uh, uh, we haven't assented to in conscience, but we must, for public reasons, assent to them uh, externally. This is beyond me to understand. Um, but external form has to do with our responsibilities to society uh, in a way I think that internal form doesn't. So it, yeah, the, I think the best practical example we have is the internal form is, is what I say in confession. The external form uh, has to do with my public activities. And it, it's pretty, it's pretty difficult. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to have to, next time I see Father Rocky, I'm going to Ask him to explain as concisely as possible the difference. But that's about as good as I can do on the commentary, brother. So I hope that helps a little. Thank you much, Father. Well, God bless, and thanks for calling in. And once again, I'm okay. honored to listen. Thank you. All right, let's, you're welcome. Let's go to John from Phoenix. John, hey, Father. are you there? Ah, what can yeah. I do for you, John? Pentecostal Christian who listens more to relevant radio than evangelical radio. Um, well, I'm a Pentecostal Catholic who likes evangelical radio occasionally, but I listen to a lot of relevant radio. So what can I do for yeah, you? I, uh, oh, um, question for you. Uh, I've heard you say before that uh, the past nor the future have any ontological status. They don't exist. Yeah. Only the now. Yes. Um, the, the past has some the Lord, reality, but the future none. Go on. Let's say the Lord knows our future free will decisions. Um, mm-hmm. For him to know that, he would have to, it would have to exist. For God to know nothing would be a contradiction, wouldn't it? I mean, and do you think he does know our free will decisions, or does he have just super inductive powers? Well, no, I, I, I always say question. also that, I, I always say that, that for God, all times are now, all... <coughs> places are here every moment is now all places are here so so the reality of who we are as it's manifested in time and space god knows that completely well then why would he have created us if we're if if we're gonna damn ourselves i believe in free will and i i i I know that most pentecostals also do uh but um because freedom is is the necessary element of love. If I have to love you, I can't love you. So freedom is given to everyone, real freedom, so that we can genuinely love. Uh, um, so if God knows where we're going to be. Why did he create us? That's the big question. Well, God knows who I am. I, I think we need to look at the angels in a sense, that, that, that they made a decision, some of them, for Christ, and some some of them made a decision against Christ, and that was in a timeless realm. We are so limited as human finite beings in this present world that we, we can only think in terms of time. You know, the idea of causing uh, something, you know, because you know it, you cause it. Well, if I'm in a helicopter and I see I see a car crash that's going to happen, knowing it doesn't cause it. Uh, so, so this idea that, that God knows the future for him, it's, it's the present moment. 
You know, I was listening to a book, a uh, very interesting book. I was listening to it on a recorded book um, from, uh, it's a foundation called the Reason to Believe Foundation. Very interesting. And I think that they are evangelical Christians, but this is a guy who I think was raised as an atheist. And he's he's a, a scientist and now, of course, a believer. And he talks about the this moment in the history of the universe. And he's believing in the, four, the 14 billion year theory. Why would God take so much time to just create a universe that that was habitable by by intelligent beings? God didn't take any time to do it. Well, fourteen billion years isn't a long time. No, Bible says not for God. You know, the it's almost impossible to really talk about time and God in the same breath. But the future. The future is, I suspect, to the present as the flower is to the seed. The seed is 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 the flower, and the, the the future is just the unfolding, in a sense, of the present. So that's as good as I can give you, John. Does that help a little? Yeah, it does. I think um, I, I agree with you that uh, <clears throat> uh, and then. Uh, Knowing something is not a causal relationship. No, and no, God, it doesn't cause it. And, and time, you, I, I think that you, you really helped me out there because time is only a creaturely uh, uh, yeah. uh, uh, metric, and it, it, it means nothing to the Lord. No, it just, yeah. you know, I, get, I got the biggest kick out of this book, Why Would God Take So Long to Create a Universe? He didn't. He, it's, 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 it's now. You know that fourteen billion years—it's now, and and this—the creation of God is, from God's point of view, I suspect, what we would call simultaneous, all at once. So, yeah, it's yeah. these are the things that that make my head hurt when I think about them. I know. Uh, I don't know. I know. Much People tell me I, I, I overthink everything, and I do. But yeah, well, I enjoy looking. You know, you're my. Well, I'm. I, I love the show, by the way. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much. I really am honored that you listen. Well, praise God, and it's good to hear you. Hear you, and I, I should move on. But great to talk to you. Let's talk to JB. Are you with us, JB, in Lyle? Yes, Father Simon. Uh, thank you for taking my call. What can I do for you? Yes, I have a question for you. If a person changes their sex, is that a sin, and will it prevent them from oneness with God or from going to heaven? All right, let us let us define sin. The word in Greek, of course, is hamartia. It means to miss the mark. It's a term from sporting. And it literally means to miss the target. In Romans, I said 3, chapter 3, verse 43, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Is this what God had for the person? Gave him a Y chromosome? They say, no, I don't have a Y chromosome, uh, just an X. In that sense, I think it is falling short of God's plan. You know, any sin is falling short of God's plan. And that seems to be the popular one of the time. Huh. I'm going to go put a cold cloth on my head. <laughs> 